Good morning. Happy Sabbath. I hope that as we continue going through this new year and these changing seasons, as the cool winter winds give way to warm spring breezes, we might be able to experience a change in our own spiritual life and in what God is intending to do not only with us, but through us. And we're going to talk about Jesus, as we do every weekend. But today we're going to talk about Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant. Now, I know that a lot of conversation is had in Christian circles about the old covenant and the new covenant and what covenant is valid and what covenant has been nailed to the cross. We're going to delve into some of those questions. But before we do, we're going to ask God for a measure of his spirit and wisdom. So I'll invite you to pray with me before we begin. God, we know that seasons change, and as seasons change, our life begins to experience different rhythms, different ways of existing, and different goals, different aspirations. But as all things change, we, we would pray that our passion for your word remain the same. Yes, especially for people that are viewing us that have lost some of that fire. May they feel the warm glow of your spirit this morning, for we pray in your name. Amen. The temple had been destroyed, and the Jews had been exiled. They'd been sent to the four corners of the empire. Jerusalem, which used to be the central of Jewish thought and culture, it was now Aelia Capitolina, a Roman city. And the biggest population of Jews in the empire was found in Egypt, Alexandria. I wonder how the writers of the Old Testament would have reacted if they would have realized that at the end of the first century, these people that were gifted the land flowing milk and honey had now been reduced to living as exiles once again in Egypt. Uh, how would they have felt if they would have found out that over 1900 years would pass until they returned to that land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So how to remain connected to your culture? How to remain plugged into your story, to your sense of a communal ethos? How do you keep these ideas of a God that works in time and space when God seems to be absent? How do you defend your beliefs in a world that is now ridiculing them? This isn't a new question. Jews living in Alexandria had to answer those questions. And in order to find answers to that question, they turned to Philo. Philo was probably the most preeminent of all Jewish thinkers. And Philo attempted to define and defend the Jewish faith in an arena that would appeal to both Greeks and Romans. They didn't talk, and he didn't talk, about the omnipotence of God. He didn't delve into conversations of strict monotheism or miracles. Rather, he based his defense of the Jewish faith based on its antiquity. For above all the things that Jews had to share with their Greek 
and Roman counterparts was the notion of something ancient, a notion that was respected in Athens and in Rome. And so Philo begins his defense of the faith based on the fact that it is an ancient faith, an ancient faith that has been able to withstand exiles and wars, the disillusion and the dissolution of territories and hopes and aspirations, the destruction of a temple. Philo says it is God's ancient gift of Torah that gives us the capacity to withstand. But you cannot base an apologetic forged completely in antiquity, try as you might. At some point, the idea and the notion that things are this way because they've always been this way loses some of its, well, shall we call it, pizzazz. And so Philo faced a conundrum. What do I do now that I've proven and that I've gotten the attention of my Greco-Roman counterparts what do I do in order to hold that notion? How do I take their ecumenical bent and use them in order to carve out a safe space for the practice of Judaism? Philo does so by uniting these ideas of the Hebrew Bible with these concepts of, that are Brick, the brick and the mortar of Neoplatonic thought. Now, why do I go into this rather brief introduction of Philo and Neoplatonism? Well, I do it because there are some interesting connections that the author of the Epistle to the Hebrews is going to make, both with those Greeks and Romans that are living and breathing Plato and with our friend Philo of Alexandria. Now, in order for us to be attuned to those literary tools that the author of Hebrews uses, I need to explain a little bit about Neoplatonic thought. Now, don't turn off your TVs. Don't disconnect from your computers. I promise this will be as painless as possible. So Plato, as you know, was the student of the great Socrates. And Plato despite the world around them, believed in two primary things, ethics and the power of the will and the spirit. Now, Plato believed that reality was comprised of two primary experiences. He thought that what you, would, what you could see, what you could taste, what you could touch, and what you could hear consisted and comprised one part of reality. But he also believed that there was a more perfect reality, a reality that couldn't be experienced through the senses. He calls this reality the perfect reality, or in Platonic thought, the realm of forms. And so Plato says that everything we see in this material world has this perfect replica. The word that he uses in Greek is a typos, a type says that there's a perfect type or a replica of every material thing that inhabits our universe in that perfect realm of forms. The hope of a life committed to ethical living is that through right choices and the power of, ration, of the human rationale, we would be able to escape this material world and then find our home 
in the realm of forms. I want you to have those ideas and see, I promised it wouldn't be as painful as you thought. Just have those ideas present as we think about what the author of Hebrews does in the eighth chapter. Our lesson for today is simply titled, Jesus, the Mediator of a New Covenant. And so we begin by entering into a discussion that the author of Hebrews has been leading us through. Now, he has just closed this section by stating that Jesus' priesthood is preeminent above all the other Jewish iterations of priesthood. So the debate that was happening between Pharisees and Sadducees as far as which of those theological lines could consider themselves the heir of the Aaronic priesthood has no sway for the author of Hebrews. For the author of Hebrews is able to ground Jesus' priesthood in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, he's done this in order to show that Jesus can function as a priest even though he doesn't have the right generational credentials. Now, before he starts delving into what Jesus' priesthood as part of the order of Melchizedek means, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, what does a priest do? Now, the temptation is to simply reduce the task of a priest to observable Liter lit observable and liturgical actions. In other, in other words, the priest is the one who performs the sacrifice, or the priest is the one intended to perform some symbolic rites. But the reality is that in the Old Testament, priests had a much more prominent role than simply performing rituals and rites. Their role was to serve as mediators between the people and Yahweh. That is why, as you know, the priest on the Day of Atonement would enter into the Holy of Holies and would have a rope tied around his ankle in case there was a sin that had not been confessed and God struck the priest down, somebody could pull him out. Think about what that means for a pastor as we approach the platform and the pulpit on every Sabbath. And so the idea was that the priest, the priest stood in the presence of God representing the people. And that thread is the one that the author of Hebrews is going to use as he weaves a new understanding, not only of what it means to be a priest, in Jesus's case, but in what it means to be the inaugurator of, as he will say, a new covenant. Now, Again, keep in mind what we talk, talked about, Neoplatonism, as we go into our text for today. Let us start by looking at the epistle to the Hebrews, the 8th chapter. We're going to focus on the 3rd verse. And it says, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. So, again, the author is going to say that the purpose of a high priest is to perform a ritual, to do something. And the question that the audience is intended to ask is, well, if Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, then what 
gift and sacrifice does Jesus possess? The answer to that question is going to be key to understanding the rest of what he's going to say in the chapter. And so it was necessary for this one also, speaking of Jesus, to have something to offer. And in the mind of the author of Hebrews, what is it that Jesus is offering? Well, what Jesus is offering is himself. And so in the, in the epistle, Jesus has this dual role. He is both our high priest and the priestly sacrifice. Now, he continues by saying, if he, speaking of Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest. Why wouldn't he be a priest? Because if Jesus were on earth, he would be a priest in line with the Aaronic priesthood. But because he has just spent a chapter telling us that Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek, then Jesus' priestly task is to be accomplished in some other arena. He will begin, by the way, chapter 8, by simply stating that Jesus is performing this priestly task from heaven. Now, on to the sacrifice. Second half of verse 4. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. And so, the author of Hebrews makes it clear. Jesus cannot offer the sac- and be part of the sacrificial system because his priestly task is not performed in the temple or the tabernacle on earth. Because it is being performed in the heavenly temple, then the gift and the sacrifice that he offers necessitates differentiation. Really tightly woven uh, argument, isn't it, that the author of Hebrews begins to develop. Now comes the interesting part. Speaking about the earthly priesthood, he says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. And the word that the author of Hebrews uses for copy and for shadow is typos and paradigmos, or paradigma. And these two words are where we get our English word for type and paradigm. And these words are key and central to a platonic understanding of the world. In essence, the author of Hebrews is saying that the earthly temple and the earthly tabernacle are mere physical representations of a more perfect temple, a more perfect tabernacle that exists in the heavenly realm. And if Jesus is performing priestly duties in this heavenly temple, then Jesus' ministry far supersedes the earthly ministries of priests in the earthly tabernacles and temples. Now, he goes on to say, this is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And here's sometimes where we get into some trouble. Notice that what is being compared is not the Abrahamic covenant, which is a covenant birthed entirely out of grace. 
correct? What is being compared in Hebrews chapter 8 is the Mosaic covenant. That is why he is connecting the temple and the tabernacle that Moses instituted with the temple and the tabernacle in which Jesus is working in. And so the comparison is not between Abraham's covenant and the new covenant instituted in Jesus, it is between Moses's covenant and Jesus's covenant. Now, what is this Mosaic covenant? Well, the Mosaic covenant, as you might remember, is the one prescribed by God in Exodus chapter 19. If you obey my commandments, then though the whole earth is mine, you will be for me and the description goes on, chosen people, holy nation, priestly kingdom. So the covenant, the covenantal construction in the Mosaic account is one that is qualified by Israel's obedience. Now, it is obvious that Israel fails in its invitation to be obedient and follow the regulations and stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And so that covenant has to now be, be set aside for something new. Now, the word that he uses in the Greek is rather interesting. As we look at what is being said, let's look at it again, verse 6, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And the, the linguistic construction seems to state that the old covenant, i.e. the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that is driven by law, is in essence now obsolete in the person of Jesus. Now, I know that there's a little bit of discomfort when we hear this because we then say, well, what do we do with the law? And some of our brethren in other uh, denominational families will say, well, the law was then nailed to the cross. But notice that Immediately after that, we have verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. So the problem with the first covenant was that people were unable to keep it. And therefore, God did something. And the author then delineates a passage that we all know well from the book of Jeremiah. And the passage begins by stating that the covenantal life is going to be experienced from a heart transformation. So the question of behavior is not the question that we ought to be focusing on. For both the Mosaic Covenant and the covenant that Jesus has come to establish have at its core this idea of Christian transformation. Modern Christian writers have said quite a bit about that particular idea. Writers like Dallas Willard, who notes that the notion of Christian salvation without a transformative experience is anathema. And so both the author of Hebrews and the people who continued to cling to the Mosaic Covenant believed that the purpose of said covenant was transformation. Now, the problem isn't the goal of the covenant. The, per the problem was the process by which that goal was achieved. 
For the Mosaic Covenant, the process of transformation from being a people without a land to being a chosen people, a holy nation, and a priestly kingdom had to do with their compliance with the Decalogue. For us, the transformation from being a people without a land to, to now being people who have promised, who have been promised the inheritance of the new Jerusalem, the transformation happens through Christ. But notice that transformation still must happen. The author makes it clear the law is going to be written in their hearts. I will forgive their wickedness, verse 12 says, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, verse 13, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete will soon disappear. Notice again that what disappears isn't the ultimate goal of the covenantal relationship, which focuses on transformation, but rather it's the process by which we enact transformation. The Mosaic Covenant attempts to do it by behavioral modification, the covenant in Hebrews attempts to do it through the sacrificial mediation of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Now, if the idea then is that Christ is both our, pre our high priest and our priestly sacrifice, and that Christ establishes the ultimate reality in this realm of forms, to borrow some language from Plato, then the invitation to the chosen people and to the holy kingdom, these people who have now become co-heirs with uh, the children of Abraham in this covenantal reality is to replicate what Jesus does. And so the invitation then for us is not only this experience of individual transformation, it is the hope that transformation might then lead to mediation. And so the call then for those of us dwelling and living in this new covenantal reality is for us to participate in the holy act of mediation. Now that needs to be really stressed because too often there have been triumphalistic readings of the epistle to the Hebrews, particularly the eighth chapter, as Christian use, use these texts to denigrate the place that Judaism or our brothers in the Jewish and sisters in the Jewish faith might have. Now, in no place does the author say that the Abrahamic covenant is abrogated. In no place does it, does it provide a supersessionist reading of the text rather it provides us to the it provides us an opportunity to engage in that invitation that was first extended to the Jews namely to go out and be a blessing to all people now you might be asking how is that blessing lived out well it is lived out through the process of transformation which occurs as one becomes an apprentice to Christ, as one follows and develops a life of intimacy with God, that then leads us to engage in the act of mediation. So the law doesn't enact transformation, Christ enacts transformation, and that is why today we can say that we follow the law, we love the law, 
We believe in the law, but we believe in the law only because we have a Savior who is mediating that new covenant, a Savior who is both high priest and priestly sacrifice. I'm really excited to talk about this with my colleague Joey because it's, I think, a discussion that is really nuanced and needs to be understood in a nuanced way within Christian circles. How are you today, Joey? I'm doing well, doing well. We are definitely out of the milk of, of theology, huh? And we're getting into the solid, this is, solid food. It's here. really nuanced, <laughs> um, but it's, I think it's a beautifully woven uh, argument that, he, that the author is building. And it's almost like the whole epistle has been building to this, right? Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You are co-heirs with Jesus. You are now part of God's chosen people because of this new covenant that Christ has come to enact. And so it's almost as if he's been building towards this, building towards this, building towards this, and now we have been invited to partake in this new reality. Yeah, I love the author's systematic approach to that. Like he's been building, he's been showing, okay, Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than this. He's the ultimate priest, like you said. And then because he's the ultimate priest, well, why did we need a new priest? It's because the old priesthood, the old covenant, wasn't enough to get the job done, right? And Jesus does, fulfills the covenant in a way that the old covenant could not. Yeah, and I think that's powerful. But as I read this, the question that kept popping into my mind was, then why did God give the Mosaic covenant? If, if the new covenant, this new way that Jesus is providing... Mm. Um, is is really the uh, the fulfillment and continuation of the Abrahamic covenant, which was based on grace, right? Mm -hmm. Why did he give the Mosaic covenant? Why was that necessary for him to do that? Um, why not just skip directly to the mm. covenant that Jesus provided? Mm. Like, was there any benefit to that? And I'm sure you have an answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was. That's the question I was thinking the whole time. I was like. What is this? What is the position? What is the plate? What is the reason for this? Mm. I mean, if you look in the wording that he uses, like you, you pointed out, the forms and the typos and all of that, there is a sense that the old covenant, um, especially the cultic elements, the ceremonial elements, right, pointed towards what Jesus was going to do. Um, Jesus, it wasn't the time, apparently, for Jesus to come at that point. But it was pointing in mm -hmm. hopes of what Jesus was going to do. All those sacrifices, the you know, killing the the morning and evening, the evening and morning sacrifices, they weren't enough to to uh, cleanse us from sin. But they pointed us to a time to a sacrifice that would cleanse us from sin. So I can kind of see that. I mean, is there is there anything else that you can think of? So I think I think the first question that that we need to ask ourselves, and I again I I will love that question because it's a question that is every bit bit as nuanced I think as the argument in the epistle to the Hebrews. I think the first question that we need to ask is within the economy of God's salvation story, hmm. where does the Mosaic covenant fit in? What purpose does does the Mosaic covenant fulfill? Um, so I'm going to try to answer that in two ways. I'm going to give you the pastoral answer, and the pastoral answer, I think, is best uh, exemplified by a sermon that our senior pastor preached 
a few years ago, not in this church, but um, I, I thought it was a masterful uh, piece of homiletics. Mm. And the title of the sermon was uh, Two Yards in a Cloud of Dust. Mm. That's and, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> telling you. The, the way he comes up with this imagery. Um, and so the, the, what, what was meant by that, by that imagery was this idea that uh, God could have this razzle-dazzle um, experience of and, and share, sharing with us this experience of salvation, but that's not how God works mm. uh, because God is intended uh, and desiring uh, partnerships. And so rather than this razzle-dazzle uh, really quick striking uh, experience with God, God gives us two yards in a cloud of dust, mm -hmm. which we some of us might know is a reference to how college football in the uh, Big East, uh, in Big Ten, in the Big Ten is played really rough. It moves slowly, but it is moving forward. It is progressing to something. And so uh, I think the main point homiletically that Randy was trying to make is that God does things at a rate that we can tolerate, mm. and then comes the Hail Mary yeah. in Bethlehem. So I think that's part of it. It's, mm. it's God's respect for human beings. The other thing I think, just from a more theological uh, perspective, and being less of a homiletician, is if you look at what the, what the Mosaic Covenant is attempting to do, is it is attempting to weave this idea of covenant into a communal experience. Mm. And we talk a lot about how uh, faith in the West is primarily used and, and viewed as an individual reality. It's my, the relationship that I have between uh, God, and, God and myself. And I think one of the things that the Mosaic Covenant does is it moves us away from this individualistic approach to religion, and it pushes us to a more communal sense of religion. And so that's, I think, why the language that uh, is used in Exodus 19 is very communal. A chosen people, priestly kingdom, holy nation. It's, it's very communal. It, it pushes us to realize that as partakers of the covenant, we have corporate responsibilities towards one another. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, I think it's a wonderful mix of God not driving us uh, farther than we can tolerate, and mm -hmm. then God reminding us that there are some corporate responsibilities mm -hmm. that we ought to have as a people of God. Wow, that's powerful. So in a sense, the Mosaic covenant prepared us to receive the new covenant that mm. Jesus, because we weren't ready for it, or the, the, the people of God were not ready for it at that point. There were things that they needed to learn, both, both individually and also communally, mm. to think communally and to grow communally. These, especially the Israelites, they were just coming out of slavery. I mean, some basic laws, basic ways to treat each other, all of those things needed to be formed and understood before Jesus could come and fulfill it so that that law could be written on our hearts. Yeah, right? yeah, no, and, and to say it simply, I think, the, I think without this communal drive that the Mosaic Covenant has, mm. then we would misunderstand what our role with the Christological Covenant is. What's mm. our role with the Christological Covenant? It's mediation, right? Mm. And who am I being called to mediate for? 
I'm not being called to mediate for myself. Wow. I'm called to mediate for others. And so without wow. that communal uh, corporate responsibility being written into the covenantal language in Moses, I don't know that we would have that we would read because mm. even now we read this Christological covenant mm. and we say, well, it's my responsibility to get right with God. And it seems yeah. like the author of Hebrews is saying, if you understand this covenant that Christ has come to institute, then you will understand that your role is transformation and then wow. mediation. And you're not mediating on your behalf. You're mediating on the behalf of others. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. Because if if it was just about me, I the only thing I need is a mediator. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be a mediator if, if, if it's just about my relationship with God. But even... Even in the Mosaic um, Covenant, there is this element that you are, he says to the whole nation, mm -hmm. you are a royal priesthood, right? So he, he, there is this idea that of communal mediation for each other as well as, as the high priest mediation for the whole community. Wow, that yeah. is so beautiful. Well stated. Well oh stated, gosh. Joey. We, I think we answered your, I think we answered your nuanced yeah. question. So then, so then if, if, if this was Mos the Mosaic Covenant, was building towards this new covenant. In what way does the new covenant make the old covenant, that Mosaic covenant, obsolete? Ah, that's. I think that's the answer, right? That's the big answer because he does say that. He yeah. says, we, we don't need it anymore. And why don't we need it anymore? Well, if you realize what is easiest to measure is behavior. I can measure behavior. Mm. I, I can say, hey, today I was really good. I can go to my bed tonight and I can look at, you know, my list and I can say, well, today I did well. I didn't create any images. I didn't take the name of the Lord my God in vain. I, it's not Sabbath, but I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I haven't talked to my mom, so it's really yeah. hard to not honor them. And you can you can go down your, your list of the 10 and you can say, I'm, I'm doing OK. Mm. But the primary purpose of the covenant isn't to mod modulate behavior. Mm. It is to enact transformation. Mm. Because once that transformation occurs, then your default position shifts, right? Your mm. default position now is to put the needs of others before your own. Mm. Your default position is to put your relationship uh, in your commitment to God before anything else. And so once that occur once that transformational piece occurs, then there's no need to regulate behavior mm. because behavior follows naturally. Yeah. And I, I, that's, I think, why I love the way that within evangelical circles, circles Dallas Willard talks about discipleship and this idea of uh, weak or uh, to quote Bonhoeffer, cheap grace that mm. does not necessitate transformation. Willard is clear. Behavior matters. Yeah. Behavior is important. Uh, but behavior is important, not as a metric or a measure of how well you're doing with God, but rather as a committed journey and experience that you're having with this God that has transformed your life. Wow. And so it's it's important. It's just important in a different way. And it's it's obsolete because it's covered. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't get, don't tell anyone, <laughs> I don't get uh, insurance when I rent a car. I don't get the extra insurance <laughs> when I rent a car. Because when I called my, my, uh, my company, mm -hmm. my question was, 
am I covered mm -hmm. regardless of the car I drive? And yeah. in my policy, my mm -hmm. wonderful insurance agent said, you're covered. Yeah. And so it's obsolete. That insurance, right, when the, I mean, rental companies make a killing out of this, <laughs> but that insurance for me is obsolete because I'm already covered with this other insurance. Yeah. And so I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. It's saying, look, 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 the Christological covenant enacts transformation. And once that transformation occurs, there's no need for the Mosaic covenant because you're covered. Wow, I love that. Pastor Miguel just dropped a truth bond there. You do not need to get rental insurance if you're other insurance, your your regular auto insurance covers you for renter, rental cars. Um, I hope that rental car companies don't get angry with us when they see this this video. <laughs> but <laughs> they'll ask about your deductible. Make sure you ask what your deductible is. Uh, that's that's the one that's the one caveat that the Bible doesn't have. That that's where the analogy breaks down. But yes, <laughs> yes. you know you get it all here. You get spiritual um, you <laughs> spiritual advice. You get financial advice. You get it all here. <laughs> we do everything. <laughs> but I but I love that. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's an obsolete. Not in that it says that the other way was wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. It doesn't say that this is no longer necessary. It's saying that it's not necessary in that that path. I loved how you said it during the, the, the talk in the beginning. That path that we took was a different path. It regulated behavior. It was an external model of, of trying to get people to to follow this law. But what you're saying is when Christ internalizes that, when he shifts our perspective, he shifts our desires we no longer need that external regulation in order to modulate mm -hmm. our behavior. Absolutely. That's, that's, and I think that's the power, right, of discipleship. Mm -hmm. um, that's why at our church we care so much about discipleship. Yeah. Because the discipleship model says we're not trying to regulate your behavior. Mm. We're trying to call you to a life where you are committed to walk and follow in the footsteps of Christ. Mm. And as you're happening... All the, and as that is happening, right, all these other things that we hope are going to happen in your life are going to start happening. You're going to become a better spouse. Mm -hmm. You're going to become a better coworker. Mm -hmm. You're going to become more patient. You're going to be honest. You're going to try and give people the benefit of the doubt. You're going to attempt to be graceful because you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Does that mean we always get it right? Oh, absolutely mm -hmm. not. But that's the good news uh, because we don't need to be perfect we just need to follow. Yeah, that's so true. I, I've been thinking about um, schoolwork and how you know, the difference between a student who loves to learn and a student who only does it because their parents force them mm. to, there is a completely different approach, right? Sometimes you have to do that external motivation to try to get them to to um, do, actually get the homework done. But the desire is eventually to inspire a love of learning mm -hmm. in the student, right? If all we, if, if at every stage in the learning process, we only focus on, well, they just need to hit this mark of behavior and we never inspire a desire to learn, then, then, then it really doesn't hold them in very good stead when, when, when those external motivations kind of fall away and right. then you go into college and you go into higher education and it's really you having to drive yourself that love of learning has to be there and what you're saying is god creates jesus came in this new covenant he came to inspire that love within our hearts mm. that enables us 
to keep the law without even thinking mm-hmm. about it. Well stated. Well stated. Wow. So then why why is that law so important? Why is the behavior then so important? I mean, we, we, we do say that that behavior is a natural outpouring of the love that's in our hearts, mm-hmm. right? But was that behavior beneficial even when that love wasn't present in our hearts or isn't present in our hearts? Is it is it good to keep the law even when we don't desire to keep mm. the law? Is there, is there some benefit to that? Because, I mean, he did put that Mosaic covenant before he wrote the law in, in the Israelites' hearts. He told them, still follow these laws, even though you don't fully understand why you need to yet or fully grasp or fully have that desire to follow this yet. It's important to keep it. So what's the benefit of the law? I think the benefit of the law, Joey, is that it it promotes our spiritual growth mm. at a pace that is palatable. Mm. Um, and we talk about this, right? Uh, we talk about uh, whether it's Fowler's uh, stages of faith development mm. or our ideas uh, in, in you know general psychology ideas of uh, maturation and uh, growth. The way you relate to people shifts. It mm. shifts in, in terms of how how you present information to them, depending on what stage of development they are, they're in, right? And so, I don't tell my kids why I do and why I tell them to do the things that I tell them to do mm. now. And I, the hope is that as they grow, the the understanding of why there are some rules that we must follow and some things that we covenant to in our home. Mm. Um, the idea is that hopefully those become clear as they grow. Yeah. But I, for me, the, looking at Israel as a system that is undergoing a process of faith development, much in the way that you know, Fowler talks about faith development, has really helped me to understand why God begins with the very concrete things, mm. things that we can touch. Yeah. Uh, because that's how we all learn, right? We yeah, all start with the true. concrete, and then we move to more complex and more abstract understandings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the proof is in the pudding. Mm. What's the problem that the that the Israelites have <laughs> just when this covenant is being given? Mm. Well, the problem is that the presence of Yahweh isn't concrete enough for them. Mm. Yeah. It's not that they believe in the gods of Egypt. Mm. It's that they want that assurance. They want to believe that the presence of God is concretely with them. And so mm. what do they do? They build a calf. Yeah. <laughs> so I think from their own behavior, you can tell that they weren't ready for this idea of, hey, everything you see here is a paradigm it's a it's a murky pale reflection mm-hmm. of what i'm trying of what i'm really trying to do mm-hmm. i think they just they weren't at that stage yet and so I, again we wonder and we marvel at how patient how patient god is with us because mm-hmm. god is saying hey i know where you're at mm-hmm. it's not the ideal but it's going to be as randy says two yards in a cloud of dust oh that's so powerful yeah, for a long time, I always I thought they worshipped the calf, but really, what it seems like they're doing, what what I've read in different commentaries, is that the those calves were supposed to be like a pedestal mm-hmm. for a god, right? And so, really, what they were doing was they're saying, well, 
we can't see Yahweh, but we can see his pedestal. So let's build him a pedestal so that we can imagine that he's mm-hmm. here with us. It was his way, their way of trying to make God more concrete to them. And a little bit of way of saying that we can control God a little right. bit and force him to come where right. we want him to be. So there was that element as well. But yeah, that desire. And so what does God do? He builds a tabernacle mm-hmm. and he makes it so that I may dwell among mm-hmm. you. And he makes himself a little bit more concrete for them. So that, although I would think that a pillar of fire and a cloud in the during the day would be concrete enough. I don't know. But still, he does that for them. He makes it more concrete for them yeah. and he helps them build their faith. Yeah, on on his terms, which is I think what is yeah. what is I, as you noted, what is really powerful about that story is that God is going to give them what they need concretely. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have that anymore. We don't have a tabernacle yeah. or a uh, we don't have an Ark of the Covenant moving around with us through the desert, um, but they did because that's what they needed at that stage. Uh, it, I think the key is to recognize that God is going to give us what we need in our faith development as long as we allow that to happen on his terms yeah. rather than on, than on our terms. Yeah, and then he made himself the most concrete when he came mm. in the incarnation, yeah. right? And he embodied himself in human flesh and came to be and live among us and show us what what he was really like so that we could really grasp mm-hmm. him. And then he, he he paid the price so that we could we could internalize the law mm. within us. And that's 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 so powerful, this this idea. So with the law, then even when we don't always feel the desire for the law, there is some benefit to following the law because it seems to it seems to be a part of the process of growing to the place where God can implant it in our hearts. Is yeah, that right? Uh, that's that's what I would say. I would, however, caution us against believe, against misusing the role that the law has. And I think the mm. New Testament is really clear, right? Yeah. What is the purpose of the law? And I love how Paul puts it, don't you? That the law is a tutor. Yeah. Um, that the law, he, he will talk about the law as a mirror as well. And so the law is, is a diagnostic tool. Yeah. It's not a salvific tool. And I think we get in trouble when we misuse the law. Wow. Uh, when people say the law was, was nailed to the cross, I say, yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, but you still need the diagnostic tool, right? Yeah. You, here is the the thing that you need in order to heal you the cross and calvary and uh christ but you're still going to need this diagnostic tool to find out where it is that we're coming Mm -hmm. short and so i think we get into trouble when we forget to utilize that diagnostic tool and we can't measure where we're at or when we transform that diagnostic tool and we start using it as a sulfific instrument wow so in in a sense Failing to keep the law is actually beneficial to us in that it helps us identify what's broken mm-hmm. within us. Almost like failing a COVID test mm-hmm. is beneficial because it tells us what we yeah. need, what disease we need to, yeah. uh, to get. If every test that we take, if we're feeling sick, but every test that we take is showing negative, then, then it actually puts us in a, in a difficult position because we know something's broken, but we don't know what. Right. But the law can help us identify if we're being honest with the ways that we're breaking the law, if we're confessing our sins, right? If we're doing that, then 
it can help us actually identify the areas that God needs to heal so that he can write his law on our hearts. Mm, that's, that's so wonderfully said. So we're not being in the fancy word that they use as antinomian or against the law. Rather, we're saying, let's understand the law in its correct context. Mm. And so I think one of the things that, that you just said that stuck out to me was, if we don't know how we're doing on the test, then we don't know what we need to do in order to heal ourselves. Mm. And I think that's really, really important. But we don't believe that the COVID test is going to do any kind yeah. of healing or transformative no. world, right? So I think to to have to have this idea of the law as if you want to call it a test or a mirror or as Paul says, a tutor. The idea, right, with a tutor is that you're not going to be under a tutor forever. The mm -hmm. idea of a tutor by de facto talks about spiritual development and growth. And I think that's why I love this idea of the law connected to the idea of spiritual growth and spiritual development. Um, because yes, you need a tutor to teach you kind of the basic principles, but the idea is that at some point you can go on your own and experiment. Wow. And God can grow that within us. Mm, that's beautifully said. That's wow. beautifully said. Yeah, I... One more thing I think that 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 I want to to explore in you know maybe 30 seconds or less. The title for our lesson Joey was called Jesus the mediator mm -hmm. of the covenant. Yeah. What who is this be, who is it where is this mediation happening because we've written a lot and we've said a lot. Mm -hmm. Um and I I get really nervous when when we start to create these mental images that we have us on one side and then in stark opposition to us we have God and then Jesus is kind of there in the middle trying to keep the peace between us and God. Is that what it means to mediate the new covenant? So I really appreciated the lesson and how the writer of the lesson defined this that mm -hmm. the role of the mediator in our mind the English word is actually too narrow right because that it does have the sense of being a negotiator and being an arbitrator between two opposing mm -hmm. sides but it also has the sense of being a guarantor and an executor, right? Which is a sense that doesn't come across in mediator, in the term, the English term mediator, right? That Jesus guarantees that this law will be written on our hearts because he has gone through this process, because he's died for our sins and resurrected. We know for sure that this is going to work. And not only that, that Jesus is actually going to execute it and make that happen mm. within us. And in that role, that's the role, according to, um, to the writer of this lesson, that that's the role that, that the author of Hebrews is emphasizing in this passage is those last two elements and not so much you know, opposing sides, God, God up in heaven saying, no, I want to destroy them. And Jesus saying, no, no, wait, wait. Father, please be nice to them. Yeah. That's that's not the image here at all. Yeah. Right? Is that it's that the sense that you have? I'm so happy that you said that because I didn't want to leave our time together yeah. without answering that question. And the original language talks about this. When in chapter eight you see the word ministry or the ministry of Jesus mm. is this this ministry of mediation, the word that he uses is is an adjective, leiturgos. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get our English word liturgy from. Yeah. And what a leiturgos was in, in the Greek or Roman understanding was somebody that was doing some, that was called to do a job 
for other people's benefit. Mm. That was the Leiturgas. Mm. I went to, I came to do this public work for your benefit as the public. Mm. And so the fact that the lesson focuses on Jesus as the executor and the guarantor, the Leiturgas, mm -hmm. who has come to do a job for us that we couldn't do on our own, and who now is also guaranteeing yeah. that what he has done, ha is, that it is a bill of goods that will cannot be voided. That's really important. So it's it's this move then from looking at Jesus as kind of the go the go between between us and God, and more looking at Jesus as an example mm -hmm. that embod that gives us certainty of salvation. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then the invitation for us then in mediation is not to become arbiters between mm -hmm. us between other people and God. Rather, it is to be guarantors of grace. Mm -hmm between other people and God. I'm so happy that you mentioned that. that because that's a nuance that the lesson made and the text makes very clear. And sometimes because of our limited language, yeah. we fail to capture those nuances. Yeah, so our role isn't so much to mediate in the fact that we arbitrate between God and other people. It's just to say, see, this is what God did for me. He can do something like that for you. Amen, that's wonderfully stated. Joey, can you close us off with that thought as we pray? Good and gracious God, we, we want to thank you so much for being willing to step into this really ugly space of this world that we inhabit with sin and destruction and death and everything that's here. You didn't step away, you stepped in. And you stepped in to provide a path, provide a way for us to reconnect with you, to provide a way for your law of love to be written in our hearts, to provide a way to heal the brokenness within us. And to do that, in human form to be a human and fully God to be here with us so that you could prove that this works, that you could be a guarantor and executor of this salvation. We want to thank you so much for that. And we ask that we also are willing to step into those, space, the, those spaces to, to speak out and, and testify of the ways that you have also worked in our hearts and to say to others, see, God can do that for you as well. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, so go out and live boldly because your insurance coverage says you are covered.